Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. Now, first of all, I'm going to apologize in advance for some alterations in the audio quality. For one thing, you may hear a bit of an echo in this recording. The computer I typically use for recording is having some issues. The first two attempts to record this podcast failed and were lost, along with the notes I had to generate the podcast. So I've switched to another computer in another room that does have a bit of an echo due to a slightly elevated ceiling. So I'll clean it up as much as possible, and I hope to have everything sorted out before I record the next podcast, whatever show that may be for. So this month, we are continuing our X-Men film coverage with The Wolverine from 2013. This is the second Wolverine solo film, but this one, although it was originally planned as a prequel, following after Wolverine Origins, ended up as a sequel to X-Men The Last Stand. And partly that was because director James Mangold, whose directorial credits to this point didn't involve any superhero films, but which did involve Copland, Girl Interrupted, Kate and Leopold, which also starred Hugh Jackman, Walk the Line, and 310 to Yuma, was coming in and he found that Wolverine's most interesting relationship was with Jean Grey. So what would it mean to him now that Jean Grey was dead following the events of the last film? So with only 14 directorial credits to his name, he was not a very prolific director up to this point. And that's going to be something of a trademark of this particular film. We've got a lot of creative teams that are fairly early in their careers. For a lot of them, it's the first or one of the first prominent projects. For example, co-writer Mark Baumbach has had some pretty significant projects, but he's got a total of 13 writer credits. So started with The Nightcaller and Godsend. His first major film was Live Free or Die Hard for the story and part of the screenplay. He then did Deception, Race to Witch Mountain, Unstoppable, and Total Recall before doing this, and then Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and is actually currently doing pre-production on War of the Planet of the Apes, due out in 2017. Similarly, writer Scott Frank has also had a fairly limited resume up to this point. 19 credits total, this is number 17. So, not as many as some of the other writers that we've talked about in previous podcasts, but more than a lot of people involved in this project, particularly when you go back and look at his IMDb history, which includes things like Little Man Tate, Malice, Get Shorty, Heaven's Prisoners, Out of Sight, Minority Report, The Interpreter, and the immediate project before The Wolverine was Marley and Me. Looking at the cast, Hugh Jackman has returned as Logan. He was trying to avoid the name Wolverine. A big part of the story is that He's trying to get out of the superhero business after the pain of losing Jean Grey and doesn't really see a lot of positive that come out of it. But a man who's alive because of Logan, for specifically for his actions in protecting him from the atomic bomb that landed on Hiroshima, he's been called back to Japan to receive what's described as a thank you. Now, although neither of them receives on-screen credit, the four-issue Wolverine miniseries that landed on the 75 Greatest Marvel Stories list that was written by Chris Claremont and co-plotted and penciled by Frank Miller, is a fairly heavy influence on this. Now, in that story, Wolverine goes to Japan to marry his love interest, Mariko, only to find that her father, a corrupt businessman, is trying to stop it because he feels that his daughter it deserves a better man than Wolverine and knows exactly how to push Wolverine's buttons to demonstrate his savage side. Her father, Yashida, even sends one of his agents by the name of Yukio to distract Wolverine and be a second love interest to try and get him away from his daughter Mariko. And 
During the course of the story, he encounters the mutant Shingen, who becomes one of the Silver Samurai, and ultimately manages to come out in one piece and show Riko the kind of man that he is. She decides that she is in love with him, but for political reasons, the wedding gets called off, even though the miniseries itself ends with an invitation to the wedding. So it looks like it's going to happen. It didn't happen for reasons divulged later. This uses a lot of the same characters, but a lot of them are the same characters in name only. So Wolverine is a fairly accurate portrayal. Tao Okamoto, who appears in her big screen debut as Mariko, is different from the comic book version. Not in a bad way. She's just not as strong of a character. And some of that is because in the comics, by the time that Forshu miniseries came out, Logan and Mariko were already in a relationship. Now, Yukio in the comics was not a mutant. Here she is with the mutant ability to foresee how someone dies. So not only do they use that as a bit of foreshadowing for the final reveal, which is not terribly surprising, actually, that the man who was there to thank Wolverine wanted to thank him by giving him the death he finally deserves by essentially stealing his healing factors that he could survive. We learn that even though he appears to have died earlier, even though Yukio didn't foresee it, he does survive and comes back in this machine. What isn't explained is why Yukio didn't see his other death either. Now Shingen, who was a mutant and became the Silver Samurai in the comics, is not a mutant in this film, but he does serve a similar role. Even though he doesn't take on the Silver Samurai armor, he still opposes Wolverine for the same reasons. Now, while Rila Fukushima, who played Yukio, was also in essentially a debut role, Hiroyuki Sanada as Shingen has a pretty lengthy IMDb credit list, although quite a few of those titles on his list are not English language titles. The same is true for Svetlana Kochenkova, whose name I probably just mispronounced. She plays Viper in this film. She's also been in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and a couple of other English language productions. She's predominantly been in Russian language productions, so I suspect that she is Russian in origin and that the accent she has here is not an accent that she's putting on. Now, while there is a Viper in Marvel Comics who does have the mutant ability to be immune to all poisons and she can poison people, although it's not a mutant ability to poison people, but since she's immune to poison, she can essentially poison herself in various ways and use that to pass that on. She's the mother of the new teenage scorpion, as opposed to the classic Mac Gargan Spider-Man villain. And she's also at one time or another led Hydra as Madame Hydra. This is the same Hydra organization that has appeared in the Captain America films and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but will not appear again in the X-Men films unless they cut a deal with Marvel because Fox doesn't own those rights. Now, Hal Yamanochi plays Yoshida as an adult, or I should say a very elderly adult, and he, again, has a very long list of credits, predominantly in Japanese. Brian T. also has a fairly lengthy list of credits. He plays Noburo in this, and his credits are actually largely in English, as are those of Will Yun Lee, who plays Harada. Now, the other notable actors in here, we've got Fumka Janssen returning as Jean Grey, although it's more her memory. This is a very different X-Men film, and they made a point of making it a different X-Men film. They removed X-Men from the title, so this is the first X-Men film to come out from Fox, and thus far still the only one that does not use the word X-Men in the title. And it's not so much about being a superhero. They wanted to give Wolverine a challenge that he hadn't had before. And up to this point, he was essentially unkillable. They wanted to make him more vulnerable and more open to attack. So thematically, this story is about the fact that he craves a death he can't have. He's basically done with living now that Jean Grey is no longer with him. And that's not an option, the only person he ever really cared about. And as part of the process, early on in the film, Viper 
actually embeds technology that either restricts or just so completely taxes his healing factor that he cannot heal the way he usually does. So now he is very vulnerable and even needs a doctor's help to survive a shotgun blast. Now, he did take a shotgun blast, and it was a long time before he got the doctor's help. He took it earlier in the day, didn't get help until after sunset. So his healing factor isn't completely eliminated. I don't know if the device around his heart was designed to shut off his healing factor or just analyze it, and the fact that his body kept trying to heal around this device wrapped around his heart was just more than a system could bear, because even his healing factor has to have limits. As far as the plot goes, thematically it is similar to the comics. Wolverine in there was also dealing with the death of Jean Grey following the Dark Phoenix saga, although it was a little more spaced out and the focus really was on Murdico. There was very little thought or mention of Jean Grey in that story. It was something he had come to terms with. It was more about taming the beast inside. Similarly, in this film, he didn't want to be the hero anymore. He didn't actually take on the name the Wolverine until he was furious and was in there tearing through people to protect Mariko. Now, a lot of this film actually works, I find, quite well because it's not designed like a typical superhero film. If we didn't have the prequels, if, you know, this was the first version of Wolverine, his claws are really the only giveaway that this is a superhero film and the fact that the old man was trying to steal his healing factor. This could have been the first film in the cycle where the old man just knew he could heal, but at no time had he ever acted like a superhero. It could have worked that way. Now, the original music for this was by Marco Beltrami, so again, not really a superheroic score, so it's not big and bombastic, although it does have the emotional resonance that's appropriate for the various scenes. You know, this is the same composer who did things like the VTV series, the Scream film franchise, so a very capable composer, just not necessarily a name you'd go to for superheroes. The same is true for cinematographer Ross Emery and editor Michael McCusker. And again, these are guys whose IMDb entries include some notable titles, but not a lot prior to this project. For a lot of people, this was, you know, the first big project that they had under their belts. And it works fairly well. I mean, the ending is rather predictable. We know early on that Viper has sabotaged Wolverine's healing factor. We know that his emotional journey is going to be getting over Jean's death and probably falling in love with Noriko here. It's pretty easy to guess that Yashida did not actually die and that he is going to be back and trying to get Wolverine's healing factor. You know, we can kind of guess that Yukio is going to be the one that actually takes on Viper face to face. Just because as far as Hollywood has come in terms of sexist tones, we still really don't have a lot of movies where guys beat women up. It's just not something we're going to see. So we need that female fighter to take on the female threat. And that's largely the role that Yukio plays in the final battle. So while Wolverine takes on Yashida, Yukio takes on Viper. And of course, they come out victorious. Mariko grows from a sheepish little girl into the proper leader of her family. And Wolverine and Yukio return to America, even if Wolverine was planning to just do it alone. Now, this film was originally released on July 26, 2013. So it had come out after X-Men First Class, but before X-Men Days of Future Past, which of course will be the subject of our podcast next month. Although this was his sixth time as Wolverine, this is the first time Hugh Jackman was completely happy with the physical tone, you know, of his muscles and the amount of fitness that he'd done. He took a lot of advice from Dwayne The Rock Johnson on this one and did a combination of chicken steak and brown rice for training, as well as going to pretty severe dehydration before filming shirtless scenes just to keep his body dehydrated to have it, you know, with prominent veins and very well-defined musculature. It was rather unpleasant for him, and he was headachy and faint through most of the filming, but it does look good on screen. 
So overall, it is a, it is a much better movie than his first solo film. And this does actually feel like it's part of the saga, particularly in the final scene where Magneto and Professor X appear, even though we last saw Professor X when he was dead and had just implanted his mind in somebody else's body. And they were drafting him to get some assistance in another project. Now, we also like to talk about, you know, the budget and how that compares. Was this movie profitable in theaters? And remember, to be profitable in theaters, rule of thumb is that the total box office, at least domestically, is two to three times the budget. Now, the budget for the film is an estimated $120 million. Now, the final U.S. domestic gross was $132,556,852. So U.S. alone would not have been enough to make that budget back. It was slightly over the budget in the intake, but remember, the exhibitors get a cut, the distributors get a cut, so the studio would be left with less than they invested in the production. Now, the total non-USA take was about $282 million. It was actually $282,271,394, bringing the worldwide total, at least as of November 2013, to $414,828,246, which is about three and a half times the original budget. So when the worldwide grosses are included, then yes, the Wolverine did make money at the box office. And that's not even counting the DVD and Blu-ray budgets and how much they've taken in from there. So it's not terribly surprising to find out that there's going to be a sequel to this with another Wolverine solo film, which is rumored to be Hugh Jackman's last turn in the role. That's something we won't discuss for quite some time because, as listeners know, I do like to go through the home video releases complete with bonus features before I discuss these. This is why we're wrapping up this month, and next month we are going to be looking at X-Men Days of Future Past as the last film in the current sequence of X-Men movies. We will come back to X-Men Apocalypse, The Wolverine, and whatever follows those as they come out, as well as Deadpool, which looks like it's going to be part of the X-Men franchise because Colossus has appeared in the trailers. At the time of this recording, it's still several months away from release. So sorry if this one's a little bit short. There were other details I had compiled on my notes, which, as I said, were lost due to the computer issues. I hope to have all of those sorted out very shortly, but unfortunately not in time for the release of this podcast. In the meantime, please remember to rate this and any other show that you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast catcher you use to listen to them. It does help the shows get noticed. Feel free to share it with your friends if you think they might be interested. And finally, thank you for listening.